All right, so we'll go ahead and get started. Um, the one thing I do need today is your solar observations. Um, if you have a copy of it, I'll take it um, to take a look at them. If not, just take a picture of it, submit it up on D2L, just submit it to the Dropbox up there. That's perfectly fine. And I'll take a look at those and give you some, uh, give you some feedback there. Uh, then next time is the exam. So exam number two is exactly like exam number one in terms of numbers of questions and the way it's split up and everything will be exactly the same, except of course we're covering a different set of chapters. We'll be covering chapters five and six, which were light and telescopes and then the sun. So the material that I'm actually covering today will not be on the, will not be on the exam. That'll be for the next exam. Uh, the review quizzes are due, if you haven't done them yet, are due, are available till 8.30 um, on Wednesday. So you can take them anytime today, tomorrow, get up early Wednesday morning and take them if you want. And remember, that is, there's your extra credits, the reminder to, to do that and get, your, get a chance for a little bit of extra credit to help with the exam. And then don't forget, if you have your key points, bring those key point sheets. Whatever notes you want to write on them are perfectly fine. Don't attach anything else to them, but just those key point sheets that I gave you uh, for this next set. You can use that for the exam, so you can have those out. Again, any notes, anything you're sure I'm going to ask, make sure it's on there. That way, of course, that ensures that I won't ask it, right? But gives you that little extra bit of confidence with it. And then the article review is due a week later and you've got the long break for that because we meet on Wednesday and then we don't meet till the following Wednesday. So don't be here a week from today because I won't be here. So um, um, that's the holiday, so holiday break. Is, yeah? Things from the previous exam be on this exam? No. Yeah. This is only on these, these, the, only on these, these chapters. Okay. So it's not, it's not cumulative until we get to the final, which is cumulative. Yeah, so this is only on this, this unit. So it'll cover the light, spectra, telescopes, and then the chapters we just did on the sun. Is it somewhat going to be like the same? Like, exactly the same structure, yep. Okay. Same number of multiple choice, same number of essays. Everything will be broken down the same. Right. I can't guarantee it won't be one more or one less photo of the day question. That would be the only thing that might. Sometimes it's four or five or six, just depending on what I get. But those would be the only thing. And then, so the article review due after that, you are welcome to select a second article from the list that I gave you. So if you want to use another one, different one from, the, uh, from that list, you're welcome to use those as well. All right, questions? Yeah? Uh, do you have more of those sheets that, you'll, uh, that we can bring for the second game? For the key points? Yeah, the key points. Did you lose yours already? <laughs> I thought I had it, but I was like, I don't remember seeing it recently, so I must have lost mine. Oh, let's see. Yeah, I think I gave them back with one of the packets of assignments when I graded some stuff. So you may find it in there, but here's, have one. Yep. Alrighty. Well, let's go ahead and get started with our picture for today, which does not tie into our class at all, since we're not doing planets in this class, but... Uh, we get to look. It's why one of the reasons I do the pictures. Sometimes we get to do, talk about the planets for a few minutes, and other times in, when I do the planetary class, we get to talk about galaxies, which they don't get to cover. So in this case, this is a picture of Jupiter. So Jupiter in the background, and the shadow is the shadow of the moon Io. So essentially what we're seeing here is an eclipse. 
if you were in Jupiter, somehow in the atmosphere of Jupiter, and traveled into this black spot, that's the shadow. That's just like what the moon shadow would look like on the Earth during a solar eclipse. So if you were there looking out, Io would be passing in front of the sun and blocking out its light. So you would be seeing a total solar eclipse if you were there. So an eclipse, even though we talk about them in terms of Earth, with the moon passing into the Earth's shadow, the moon passing in front of the sun, they could occur on any planet. So you could have eclipses on Jupiter, Saturn, anything that has a moon could have something that would pass in front, uh, that could pass in front of it. Within Jupiter itself, we get to see some of the different colorings of the atmosphere. It's got some lighter and darker colorings. So it's a very complex atmosphere, lots of storms and swirling and twisting and turning uh, going on within the atmosphere as well. So there's actually a lot of things going on there. And the Juno spacecraft is... Um, right now in orbit around Jupiter and is studying the atmosphere, it takes close-up images. It's actually in a really odd orbit. It's in what we call, first of all, a polar orbit. Most things, yeah, most things go around the equator. When you, go, when, you, when you sent the other spacecraft, they went around roughly the equator of the planet. This one goes around the poles, so it's in a completely different orbit. And it also is in a very elliptical orbit. So it comes in, it whips down real close to Jupiter, Few thousand, few thousand kilometers above the surface, and then goes back out. It's a 57-day 50, orbit. It's about two months that it takes to orbit. So it zips in, spends its couple of hours in close, and spends most of its time far away. Why? Jupiter has, some of the, mo has the most intense radiation belts. So they were concerned. You couldn't just put it in a low orbit. The radiation would fry the equipment. So you go in, get a quick observation, and go back out. And it's doing that. It's actually, was, it's actually now survived better than we thought it would. So its mission keeps getting extended. I think it's into 2021 now that they're planning on it being able to survive. They weren't sure if it would survive through this, through this time. So it actually did a lot better than we thought it would and continue to get more information from it. And right now it's the only planet, Jupiter is the only planet currently being explored in the outer solar system. It's the only one that has any kind of spacecraft there. All right, questions? <coughs> Excuse me. All right. Well, we've got three chapters to go through. Sounds like a lot. These are actually shorter chapters, so I don't know if I'll get through all of them. I've actually extended. This is what we're scheduled to do this week and next, so we'll get started on it, see how much of it I get through. And then next Monday we don't meet. Next Wednesday we have a little bit more time to kind of finish up this, this section. So what we're going to look now is at the stars, but we're going to start off looking at the properties, the general properties of the stars. What are the different stars like? And then we will work into, in the next section, so after next week, we'll look at how stars form, how they live, how they die. That's when we start to get into all the cool things, black holes, neutron stars, pulsars, all that kind of interesting things that happen at the end of a star's life. So... We don't st study most of the main part of a star's life because it's boring. Right now, the sun, we, we talked about the sun, but the other stars, it's pretty much the same. Burn hydrogen to helium for whether it be a million or a billion or 10 billion or a trillion years, not much happens, especially when you're looking at it from a distance. So there are some things that we don't look at as much. So what we're going to look at now, again, the properties. So some of the properties of the stars that we can see, one, 
Easy, one easy one to see, and that we've been able to see for a long time, is the brightness of a star. How bright does it, is, it, is it in the sky? But there's two different ways to measure brightness. The second one, the apparent brightness, easy one. How bright does it appear to be? You go out at night, look at the stars, you see a bright star, you see a faint star. Well, this would be a very bright star would be how bright it appears from the Earth. So but it doesn't necessarily tell you whether that star is really bright. Sun is really bright, right? It's a star. The only reason the sun is really bright is because it is so close. If you took the sun and moved it just 30 light years away, 30 light years is still in our solar neighborhood, very close to us. Not, I mean, our galaxy is 100,000 light years across, so moving 30 light years away is moving nothing. Our, gal our sun would be one of the faintest stars in the sky. Still visible with the naked eye, but it would be one of the fainter stars that you could see in the sky. Even move just 30 light years away. If you moved it 100 light years away, you wouldn't be able to see it without a telescope. So that's what we don't know. When you go out and look at a bright star in the sky, is it really a bright star? Or is it just a star that's close to us? And it's a combination of them. Some of the brighter stars that we see, uh, Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, is actually pretty close to us. It's only about eight light years away relatively nearby, uh, by comparison. Other bright stars um, are thousands of light years away that aren't that much fainter than it. So there are some other stars that are not much fainter than Sirius, but might be several hundred light years away, several thousand light years away. So there's a big difference in the distance and that really how bright something appears depends on its distance. Is it really faint or is it just far away? And we don't know that without being able to figure out the distance. So apparent brightness we can see easily, but it doesn't tell us a whole lot about the star. The one that does tell us about the star is the luminosity. That's what we call sometimes the absolute brightness. The luminosity is how much energy is being emitted by a star every single second. We measure it in solar luminosities, right? Compare it to the sun. The sun has a luminosity of one. So a really bright star might have a luminosity of thousands of times the luminosity of the sun. And it's, so it's emitting a lot more uh, energy. And that's how we measure it. We use, again, as I talked about, when we talk about the sun, we use these uh, luminosity, sometimes luminosity with a little sun symbol, which is a circle with a dot in the middle, simply means the luminosity of the sun. So we would compare other stars to the sun directly that way. So this is the important one. This really tells us how bright the star is. If you measure a star's luminosity, you know whether it's really putting out more energy than the sun or less energy than the sun, or maybe the same. Measuring the apparent brightness, we really can't compare it. And the difference between these two is the distance. How far away is something? So if we know the distance, so if we know a star's apparent brightness and how far away it is, then we can calculate the absolute brightness. Problem is, as we'll see in the next chapter, distances are really hard to measure. How do you figure out how far away something is? You can't send a spacecraft out there and figure out how long it takes to get there and to get back. So we'll look at that, at that coming up. But in terms of the brightnesses, we want to look first at the apparent brightness. And we use that. Astronomers used a scale called the magnitude scale. This was developed a long time ago, 150 BC. 
um, by Hipparchus, one of the early Greek astronomers. And what he did was he was just, okay, long before Galileo, long before telescopes, he just grouped the stars. So he'd look, he'd go through the brightest set of stars that he saw in the sky, pick out the, here's the 20 or 30 brightest stars. Those are stars of the first magnitude. They are the greatest, brightest stars. Next group, however many stars, would be the stars of the second magnitude. Third, fourth, fifth, and the faintest stars he could just see with the naked eye would be stars of the sixth magnitude. So he just grouped them into six categories, first magnitude through sixth magnitude. And that was great, but it causes some problems now. And it may, I think it makes sense, right? The brightest stars are those for the first group of stars, then the next ones are the second group. But when you actually try to quantify this, to put numbers to it, and to give a star a magnitude, so we, know, we no longer group them just into six groups, but you could have something in between. Because not every star is exactly the same brightness, and when you start making measurements of them, you could find something that's between one and two, one and a half. Or between that, one and a quarter. Closer to one than to one and a half. But what that means is that it's backwards. When we start putting magnitudes to stars, a star of magnitude 1.2 is brighter than a star of magnitude 3.8. We don't measure most things that way, right? Larger number for distance, bigger, bigger number means larger distance. Bigger number means higher temperature. Bigger number means higher velocity. Bigger number means smaller magnitude fainter star. All because of the way Hipparchus set this up a couple thousand years ago. And it's still used today. We still use this type of measurement Today, except that, again, we've quantified it, made it more detailed, that we cannot say, not say that a star is just first magnitude, but it might be magnitude 1.83. But it still comes out that the smaller the number, the brighter the star. So it's backwards. The other difficulty with it that we sometimes say is that it's not linear. What do we mean by that? Is I mean by temperatures. If you talk about temperature... If it's 40 degrees, 80 degrees is twice as hot. If something is 10 meters away or 20 meters away, it's twice as far away. 10 meters versus 100 meters, it's 10 times further away. Well, this is a nonlinear one, meaning that a second magnitude star, we know it's fainter than a first magnitude star, but it's not twice as faint. It's two and a half times as faint. It has to do with how your eye registers light, so how Hipparchus actually originally set these up. It was not a digital recording of them, right? Back in 150 BC, he was just looking at them. And that's how your eye naturally measures the brightnesses. So five magnitudes, the difference between a first magnitude star and a sixth magnitude is a factor of 100 in brightness. We do use scales like this, right? The Richter scale is one of them, for example, for earthquakes, right? A 9.2 earthquake versus a 9.1 earthquake isn't just a little bit worse. It gets exponentially worse. And that's kind of similar to the type of scale that is used for magnitudes. So not only is it backwards, but it's also not easy, not just easy to say that, oh, we've got a fifth magnitude star and a first magnitude star. I know that the first magnitude is brighter, so the fifth magnitude star is five times fainter. It's not five times. It's actually two and a half times two and a half times two and two and a half for each of them. 
So this is still the scale that's used today. Now, this is not used for other uh, observations. Radio observations just use intensities, x-rays. So more modern ones, things that didn't exist back here, don't use this. We don't convert x-ray measurements to magnitudes for comparison. But visible, visual observations are still made. If we're measuring the brightness of a star, it's still done often with the magnitude scale. And, oops, sorry, yeah. Two point five for each unit. So one to two is two and a half times. Two to three is two and a half times. So the difference between those would be two point five times two point five or six point two five if you're going one to three. Then you multiply it by two and a half again. If you do that all the way down to six and you multiply two point five times two point five, you'll find out it's a hundred. Okay, so from the first to the six is First to the six would be a hundred. That's a five magnitude difference would be a hundred. So showing it kind of in a picture form, because we've also expanded it. We're not, we don't, it doesn't apply just to stars. This can apply to any object that we look at in space. So we have things like you know, bright stars would have been right in here around Betelgeuse, a little less than one, but close to one. And then faintest stars are down here about six. That was what Hipparchus gave us. And then we've since added it. Some of these stars, things like Sirius, is actually brighter than first magnitude. It's the brightest star in the sky. Well, he didn't differentiate between the very brightest star and the second brightest and the third brightest. So now that we actually make measurements, we find that Sirius fits out here at actually a negative magnitude. Mars, Jupiter, and Venus are actually brighter. He wasn't including the planets, but you can measure the brightnesses of the planets as well. So, but we can also now see fainter objects. Right? He didn't have a telescope. He didn't have binoculars. We can now actually go down towards 30, 31 magnitudes, 31st magnitude. So that's very, very faint objects. And that kind of gives you the limit. These are the limits as to what you can see with binoculars, about a tenth magnitude. A one-meter telescope will get you down to about 18, 19. Four-meter telescope gets you down further. Hubble and some of the really big telescopes are getting us down into the 30s. If you remember, you want to see how many times fainter that is than, than something, uh, than, than a star of first magnitude, than a bright star? Just take two and a half times two and a half times two and a half, 30 times. I'm not going to calculate, but you could calculate how many millions or billions of times fainter that is than a really bright star. You need extremely powerful telescopes to be able to, to see those. And of course, there are even really bright objects, right? The brightest object in the sky would be our sun, about negative 26 and a half magnitude. Smaller number means brighter. So if you go beyond, if you go smaller than one, then you go to zero and you start going to negative numbers. So some of the really brightest objects, like the sun, like the moon, like the planets at their brightest, and some of the brightest stars are all negative magnitudes. Yeah? Is this the same scale that they'll rate, you know, how bright the space station and when the shuttle was still up, how bright it would be when it was passing? They usually, that's usually what they would probably give for it because it would be a comparison to other objects. So again, I've given the numbers that I talked about last time. Each magnitude is two and a half times. So if you want to go from the sun at negative 26 to this, you could just multiply two and a half, 50 some times. And it's a really, really big difference in brightness. Um, and each five, make it easier, you can do each five as a factor of 100. So this is 100. So 100, so then you've got you know, 10,000, a million. 
as you go down there. It really quickly gets very, very large. Now, I mentioned other wavelengths, but most wavelengths use luminosity, just use a raw luminosity, not a magnitude scale. Uh, so visible light does use this. Infrared and ultraviolet sometimes use it because they're very similar. Detectors are very similar to what we use for uh, at least the closer portions of these. But things like radio waves don't use, don't use magnitudes. You don't have a radio magnitude, you have a radio intensity. How much radio energy is being put out by that object. So it's a little it's easier, it's comparable to what we're used to using. So if something has twice the radio luminosity, it's twice as bright. You don't have to use that factor of 2.5 in between as you do with the other ones. But we do use it with infrared, ultraviolet, or sometimes, sometimes used as well, especially in the, what we call the near-infrared or the near-ultraviolet. All near means is they're the parts really close to that little visible spectrum line. So the violet that's just past the, the ultraviolet that's just past the violet, the red that is just past the infrared, those are pretty much used interchangeably with this. If you get further out into the really high intensity ultraviolet or the really low, long wavelength infrared, then sometimes measurements are a little bit different in those. So brightness of the star is one thing that we can measure. Another thing that we can look at relatively easy is the colors of the stars. What color is a star? Now the color of a star, I'll show an image here. We see some nice blue stars, we see some nice red stars. Hopefully you remember from chapter five, especially since it's on the exam, right? Short wavelengths, blue means it's hotter, higher temperature. Long wavelengths like red would mean a cooler temperature. So if we just take a picture of this, you can tell me which, which are the hotter and which are the cooler stars. Right? The ones that look blue are going to be the hottest. The ones that look red are going to be in the coolest, coolest, and the ones that look kind of a whitish are going to be in between those two. Now, it doesn't mean, that doesn't give you an exact measurement of temperature. It doesn't say exactly how hot it is because a red star might be 2,000 degrees, 3,000 degrees, 4,000 degrees could vary quite a bit. A blue star could be 15,000, but it could be 30,000 Kelvin. So it doesn't tell you the exact temperature. There are other methods that we use to get that, but it does tell you at a quick glance where the hotter and the cooler stars are. So when you see a bluish star, we know it's very hot. When we see a red star, we know that it's very cool. And if you remember, that was Wien's law that we looked at previously. The nice thing is, the color does not depend on how far away it is. So a star that's a lot further away, that doesn't matter. It's not going to affect. Like it affects the magnitude, it changes how bright it appears to be. The color doesn't change. So we can look at very distant stars, and we can still learn something about their temperatures. Because that is not affected. The thing that does affect it, and we'll look at this in coming chapters, but there is dust in the interstellar medium in between the stars. And that can affect the colors. And in fact, it can make things look redder than they should. But as I said, there are some ways to go, out, go, about, go about actually getting the temperature. And one of these is what we call the color index of a star. The color index is just measuring the magnitude through two different filters. And the standard filters that are used are the ultraviolet, the blue, and the visual. 
UBV. So U is kind of off in the ultraviolet a little bit. Blue, blue portion of the spectrum. V, visual, kind of the yellowish green portion of the spectrum. So you can measure those, and, when, and then you, so you measure the magnitude in, say, two of these, B and V, and you subtract them. So if you measure a magnitude, how much blue light it's putting out versus how much visual light it's putting out, and measure those actual magnitudes, then you can get, subtract them, and you can get a value for this B minus V. Once you do that, it's, that's actually directly related to the temperature. So if you get a very small value, it means it's a very hot star. So if the blue magnitude, subtract the visual magnitude from that, and you get a small value, negative value, it's a really hot star. A positive value gets you a really cool star. So negative values may be you know, negative 0.1, negative 0.2 for really hot stars. Uh, really cool stars, it might get out to 1.5, 2, 2.5 uh, values. Specific numbers aren't important, but it gives us a way to get the temperature because as it gets bigger, that's a directly related to the temperature, and we can then use that to measure the actual temperature of a star. So a star is 6,250 Kelvin. Well, that, that, that corresponds to a very specific value for the color index. So this is how we actually go about measuring them. Just looking at the color gives us a quick idea hot or cold. Actually making a measurement, taking measurements of how much light is coming in through this filter, how much blue light is it getting versus how much yellow light, that ratio between the two tells you the temperature. When you look at those two directly, I can then say that temperature, if I get you know, a value of 1.3 for the color index, it applies some very specific temperature. And we can then determine that directly. So this is how we actually go about measuring. So we can measure the brightnesses of the stars. Just got to put your little uh, CCD detector there, collect how many photons are coming. That's then going to be related to your magnitude. You can measure the temperatures by looking at it through two different filters. How much light is coming through through a, very, through a, through a band of light in the blue, band of light in the yellow-green. Compare those two. That will give you the temperatures. So it gives us a way to really learn a couple of the properties of the stars. Now, finishing up the first section here, again, we talked about absolute and apparent. Apparent brightness, the easy one to measure. That's just how bright something looks out there. I could take a telescope, take a detector, how many photons are coming from it each second, and we know how bright it is. Absolute is a lot harder because we've got to get the distances. And we'll be looking at distances in the next chapter in a little bit. The magnitude scale likes to drive all of us crazy because it's backwards. So when we talk about a magnitude 2 star versus a magnitude 6 star, we've got to remember the magnitude 2 star is brighter. And it's not three times brighter. It's actually 2.5 times 2.5 times 2.5. 2, 3, 4, 5. So you multiply those 2.5s together to get how many times brighter it is. The colors, on the other hand, tell us something about the temperature, vaguely, and the color index gives us a way of being able to measure the temperatures. All right, so questions on brightness, temperature, magnitudes.
Alrighty. Well, the next thing we want to look at for this chapter is the spectra of the stars. How do we group stars? Star there are different types of stars that we see. And what we find is that every star has the same composition. So there aren't iron stars and neon stars and helium stars and hydrogen stars. All stars pretty much have exactly the same composition. 90% of their atoms are hydrogen, 10% are helium, that's it. Rest is all others. So astronomers sometimes talk about things like carbon stars. Carbon stars have an excess of carbon in their atmosphere. That excess is still a tiny amount. They're still 90% hydrogen and 10% helium, but they might have five or 10 times more carbon than a typical star. So if you hear about different types of stars, that often just means that there's an excess relative to the normal, uh, normal light, tiny abundance of those elements. But when we look at stars, they, they are classified based by their spectra. Remember a spectrum. You take the light of the star, send it through a prism, split it up into its component colors, and look at those spectral lines. We see different spectral lines in different stars, not because they're made of different things, but because their temperatures are different. And that's what the graph here is trying to show. The graph shows how strong lines of various types of things are at different temperatures. So hydrogen, most prominent element in the universe. If you get to about 10,000 Kelvin, that's when it hits its peak. How strong do those lines get? That's when they're the strongest. As you get to lower and lower temperatures, you get less and less strong hydrogen lines. Other lines will become more prominent. Why? Well, what happens here? We'll look at hydrogen as an example. When you get down to cooler stars, you have to excite those hydrogen atoms. You've got to jump their electrons up into higher energy levels. The colder the star, the less likely it is to excite them. It doesn't have as many high energy photons of light to be able to excite them. So by the time you get down to these classes, these classes that are in the two and three and 4,000 Kelvin, hydrogen lines are almost invisible. Even though the star is still 90% hydrogen, you just can't excite it. When you go to the other direction, it peaks because if you make it too hot, you start ionizing the hydrogen. You rip the electrons off of it. Well, if the electrons are off and not recombining with the hydrogen, then guess what? There's, no, there's very few hydrogen atoms with electrons to give you hydrogen lines. So as it gets much hotter, it drops off quickly as well. So the hydrogen lines will be strongest at about 10,000 Kelvin. For something like the sun, the sun is very strong in ionized metals, meaning metals with at least one electron taken off. If you get to cooler stars than the ionized metals, they're not strong enough to ionize them, so you get neutral metals. If you get to really hot stars, you get things like helium. Helium lines in the sun are really, really weak. The only reason we can detect helium easily in the sun is because there's so much of it. If helium were a very small component, by the time you get out to the sun, which is off in this class, so off in this section over here, the amount of excitation of helium is really small. So the only reason we detected it in the sun is because the sun is so close to us, we can get a very detailed spectrum and able to see things that we would not otherwise be able to. So 
again, the stars are all the same composition. The lines that we see tell us something about the temperature. Really hot star is not going to be able to form molecules. Molecules, two atoms bounded together. Well, if it's really hot, if it's thousands of degrees, everything's running around, banging into each other, those molecules get broken apart faster than they form. So there are no molecules. In a really cool star, they start to stick together, and you start to see some lines of molecules, but not until you get to the really, really cool stars does that become important. So what lines we see is a way of being able to classify the stars, and that's what's been done. And in fact, this was started back in the 1880s, uh, Wilhelmina Fleming, gave us classified stars based on how strong their hydrogen lines were. So, class A, strongest hydrogen lines. Class B, next strongest. C, D, E, so, so on down the alphabet, as the hydrogen lines got weaker and weaker and weaker. Now, that was something, and that was how we tend to classify things first, is just what we see, but it was not till another decade or so later that we got the physical meaning behind that. We didn't understand whoops, too, this kind of thing at that point, how they, how they actually worked. So the classification was done of that, and then Annie Cannon is the one who went through and redid these, rearranged these classes that Wilhelmina had given us, combined some together. That's why some letters disappeared, and that's also kind of why they're out of order. So... What it turns out is that the O stars had weak hydrogen lines and are also very rare stars, so they got classified way down at the end, but they're actually, in terms of temperature, the hottest stars. They don't have strong hydrogen lines, they have strong helium lines. And then B, A, F, G, K, and M. Yes, there were other classifications, some of them got merged and combined together as we learned more and more about the stars. So this is our final classification, which is still really the basis of the classification for most stars that we see today. There are some really rare ones that go off to one side of this. There are some, really, uh, some other ones that go off to the cool side of this. But this is the main classification of stars that we use. So colors that they'll appear, going from a blue down to a red. What kind of temperatures you're talking about? Over 30,000 Kelvin. Again, compare it to our sun. Our sun's about six. So five times or more hotter, uh, higher temperature than our sun, down to half or less than half of the temperature of our sun. So we kind of fit right in here. We're in the G class in the five to 6,000 Kelvin range. And the principal features just tell you what kind of lines you would expect to see. So here you start to see the helium lines in these couple. Uh, very strong hydrogen lines in here, and then the hydrogen lines get very, very weak when you get to those much cooler stars. Now, as I said, these have expanded, so we've actually added in some other classes, but this is the main, this is the main classification, but a few others that have come in um, over the last hundred years or so are the wolf Ray stars, class W, which are really hot stars out beyond the O stars, but actually have emission lines, not just absorption lines. They have emission lines. So they have a lot of hot gas still around them that is giving emission lines in addition to absorption lines. We do get, I mentioned the carbon stars. Uh, these are classes C and S that are giant stars that have a lot of extra carbon in their atmosphere. And again, excess carbon means they might have five or ten times the amount of carbon that a typical star does. 
doesn't mean that they're made of carbon, but they are much, much hot, much, much cooler than the, much cooler than the sun, very, very big red stars, but they have, they have a higher percentage of carbon that we would, than we would expect. Where do they come from? How do we get excess carbon? Well, we haven't gotten there yet, but we talked about fusing hydrogen to helium. The next step in energy generation is fusing helium into carbon. So essentially, these are stars that we think is actually, are actually dredging up. They're fusing helium to carbon in their core, and material is being dredged up by those great convective currents and being brought to the surface. So they get an excess of carbon in their surface. And then there are the brown dwarf stars, relatively recent discovery than the last few decades. Uh, these are much cooler than the M-class stars. There's L's, T's, and Y's, again, as you get lower and lower temperature. These actually get lots of molecules. They get so cool that actually dust grains can form in their atmosphere. You're getting down to things that are only 1,000 degrees or less. Still may sound hot to us, but in terms of particles being able to form, it's actually possible now. So we do have the brown dwarf stars, uh, brown dwarf stars as well. Brown dwarf stars can be a misnomer. They're really not stars. Depending on how, if you go by the actual definition, what is a star? A star is something that is producing its own energy. We say it for the sun, it's fusing hydrogen to helium. There are some other energy sources as well. A brown dwarf isn't quite there. It doesn't, have a, it doesn't get a high enough temperature in its core to fuse hydrogen to helium. They're kind of this border, this intermittent, intermittent stage between the stars and the planets. Well, what if you're too big to be a planet, but too cool to be a star? That's the brown dwarfs, or that range in between. So they're not really stars, they're not producing their own energy, but they're not really planets either. And in fact, when we classify them, we classify them by looking at their masses. If you have a mass less than 0 0.075 times the mass of our sun, if you're less than that, the, the the, sun, the core will never get hot enough to be able to fuse, to have any nuclear reactions going on. So no nuclear reactions going on. Those are essentially failed stars. They didn't quite make it. They just missed by either a little bit or a lot, depending on their exact size. They couldn't quite get nuclear reactions going. They didn't, couldn't get the temperatures and the densities that were needed. So they're what we call failed stars. However, they can fuse deuterium. If you remember our proton-proton chain, the first step was fusing two protons together and making deuterium. That's just hydrogen with one proton and one neutron. Deuterium is easier to fuse. It fuses at about a million degrees. And that's kind of our distinct, what, what distinguishes a brown dwarf. What is, the, what, is, what is the thing that we use to distinguish between brown dwarf stars and planets? Well, a star has nuclear reactions going on in its core involving hydrogen or heavier elements. Brown dwarf star can fuse deuterium, and then a planet is something that deuterium can't even fuse. So something like Jupiter is not even close to being a brown dwarf, let alone to being a star. You need to be about, Jupiter would have to be 13 times more massive in order to get to the point where deuterium fusion is possible. So even if you took Jupiter and added in all the other debris in the solar system, well, you wouldn't even get it to two Jupiter masses. So Jupiter's not even close. The rest of the debris in the solar system isn't close to being another star. 
You've got a long ways to go here, and then once you get to that level, you've still got to get up many closer to the mass, a uh, good fraction of the mass of the sun in order to have nuclear reactions occur. So this is kind of how we classify. What is a planet? What do we classify as planets? Well, that's things that are smaller than 13 times the mass of Jupiter. Stars have to have a certain fraction of the mass of the sun, and the, those are the criteria, but what's actually going on is whether nuclear reactions are going on or if deuterium is being able to be fused or not. So that's kind of our classification between them. So some of the other properties that we can look at for stars are the sizes. Stars come in a big, big variety of sizes. Um, some are really big compared to the sun. Some are really small. We actually have giant stars, supergiant, hypergiant stars. And some of this is to show a little bit of a comparison. I'll show you the video clip in a minute. But if you're lo looking at things within the solar system, you know, there's Mercury compared to the Earth. There's Earth compared to Jupiter. There's Jupiter uh, compared to the Sun. Here, where's our the Sun and then Sirius. But then if you jump again, there's Sirius, this star, compared to some of these other larger stars. And then if you take a little Aldebaran and shrink it down, then you get to these stars like Betelgeuse. And if you take a little Betelgeuse, you get up to some of the larger stars. So in other words, comparing to the sun, you can't even put the sun to any kind of scale here and be able to see it with some of the largest stars that exist. These are things that would fill a large chunk of our solar system if they were you know, here. In our, in our solar system. In fact, we would orbit inside things like Betelgeuse. We would be orbiting inside it. It would stretch out past the orbit of the Earth more than one AU away from where the center of our sun is. So, again, many times larger. Let me go ahead and do the little video clip here that we can watch this, do the stars comparisons. Come on. Did I hit? No? Helps if I hit play, doesn't it? There we go. Okay, I'm going to leave the audio off here so I can talk about it. But we're going to start. This one starts with the moon. So starts with our moon there and then works through the solar system first just to do a comparison. There's Mercury, the inner planets. Again, a big difference when you jump out there to Venus and there's the Earth. Two, about the same, two are about the same size. So there we are. Get rid of that. There we go. Then we get to the outer planets. Again, a big jump between what we see here, Earth, and things like Jupiter. And then an even bigger jump. There's our sun. Again, very, very large. And then we get out to Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. Our poor little sun is going to start disappearing down, is disappearing down there as we get out to some of these really large stars. We're just in the red giant phase. We haven't begun to get there yet. So, supergiants. Now we're hitting the blue supergiants and blue hypergiants. And then red supergiants. The red stars tend to be bigger than the bluer stars. So these are red supergiants. And then there is this star, VY Canis Majoris. This is the largest known star, a red hypergiant. And it gives you a little comparison here to give you an idea of how big this thing is. There's us. Right? We're only seeing a tiny fraction of its surface here. 2.8 billion kilometers. 
I mean, compared to the sizes, that fits out a large chunk of the way through the solar system. But if you're traveling around it, right around the surface in a jet airplane, 900 kilometers per hour, it would take you 1,100 years to orbit, to circle it, just to go around it one time. So I think of airplanes as traveling fast, but still, that's just, you know, incredible in terms of sizes compared to all of the other things that we can, that we can see. So I'll give, give you a little bit better than just my still images of the sizes you really get to see. You, know, you start off with the moon, you end up with the, these largest stars. There's a big difference between the sizes of the objects. Alrighty, so let's clear out of that and go back to our sizes here. Again, gives you a little bit more perspective, but there is VY Canis Majoris. That is the largest star that we know of. And as I recall, that'll go out to about the orbit of Saturn if we put it where the sun was. So not only would Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars be gone, but Jupiter would be gone. Jupiter would be orbiting inside this star. The interesting thing is that our sun, well, okay, our sun probably won't get to that phase, but our sun will become a very large star. It actually will engulf the inner solar system in billions of years at the end of its life. So it'll get to some of the red giant and red supergiant stages. It probably it might take other stars to actually, get unusual ones, to get to that hypergiant stage. But just to give an idea of some of the sizes there. So when we look at the sizes of the stars, we classify them by size, by their size as well, how big the stars are. So we had a spectral class, that's O, B, A, F, G, K, and M for the primary ones. We also give them a luminosity class because you could have a star that is a G-type star, but there's a difference if it is a G-type ordinary dwarf star or a giant star or a supergiant star. Big difference between a star that you know, they can be the same temperature, which is all that the, the, the class gives them, all that the spectral class gives them. doesn't tell us anything about anything else about it. It just says, here's how hot it is, and that's how we've classified them. So to make this a two-dimensional classification, go in two directions, we classify them by not only the temperature, but their luminosity. So that splits them out. There's actually some other subdivisions here. I don't even worry for you guys about two and four. Really, one supergiants, the giants, and the dwarfs. So the ones, threes, and fives are the more common ones, but they're supergiant stars. Well, one of the ways we can tell this is how the spectral lines appear. Not which spectral lines, but the appearance of the lines themselves. If you have a really big star, it's really low density. When you get out there, it's really, really low density. The particles are not close together. You've taken the same material. It's not many more times more massive. It might be that much larger than the sun, but it's not a million times more massive. In fact, we'll find out you can only get to about 100 times the mass of the sun. You just spread it out over more space. It's really a lot of, empty, a lot of almost empty space. So it has a very low density, which means the particles aren't banging into each other, and it gives you really sharp, well-defined spectral lines. So if you see a G-class star with really sharp lines, sharp narrow lines, it's a supergiant. Medium lines would be a giant. Thicker lines would be a dwarf. So it depends on how wide those lines end up being. So that's one way we can tell. And it all has to do with the density. This is the density at the surface of our sun, which would be classified down here as a dwarf star. 
Right? I think we saw that in the image. Our sun was a very tiny compared to all those gigantic stars, which were the giants and the supergiants. So that gives us, we can classify those, but there could be a star that has the same temperature of the sun, but a lot lower density, a lot larger. It could be a giant star or one that would be a supergiant star. Same temperature, but the densities are different, and that gives a different appearance in the spectral lines. The other one that we see is differences in ionizations, lower density. You're going to see uh, ions are less likely to recombine. So those electrons are floating around. They're further away from the nuclei. They don't recombine as easily. And you're going to see a different set of, a little bit different ionization state when you get to the higher stars, the supergiants and giants. So you're going to see some different, slight differences in the spectrum, but primarily just how thick the spectral lines are is how we classify those. All right, so how do we figure out what stars are made up of? Again, we talked a little bit about this when we talked about the sun. But really, depending on what any star you're looking at, about 96% of the atoms, or more, would be hydrogen and helium, pushing towards 99% for many of them. Anything else is a metal to an astronomer. So you have hydrogen, you have helium, and you have all the heavy metals, heavy elements. That means things like that, that a chemist would not call a heavy metal, or a biologist, or anyone else, you know, things like carbon. Carbon is a heavy metal to an astronomer. If it's not hydrogen or helium, it's one of those little trace elements. So they are all called metals. Sometimes they'll talk about the metallicity of a star, how, much, how many metals it has. We have to not think. That's not just things like iron and carbon, or iron and copper and zinc and you know, what we consider metals, but anything else, anything that is not hydrogen or helium would be classified as a metal. So just when you hear that term, astronomers talk about metals or heavy elements, they mean anything that's not hydrogen or helium. What, does the, what do the lines tell us? If you remember, this was um, done uh, way back in the 1920s, Cecilia Payne-Gaposchkin, I think I talked about with our, when we talked about the sun last time, she was measure, doing her thesis measuring the, measuring the lines, and she came up with the fact that these hydrogen lines based on temperatures and doing all the calculations, that hydrogen was the vast majority of the star. And what that means is that even though the hydrogen was weak, because of the temperature of the sun, there had to be a lot of hydrogen there. If you recall, it wasn't accepted. Right? She had to put a disclaimer in her thesis saying that, you know, this can't possibly be right, but it's what I've calculated. And it turns out, yes, she was absolutely correct, that it was, that it was right. But what we know when we look at the absorption lines, just, just because we don't see something there, doesn't mean the element isn't present. If we don't see in a very cool star, we don't see helium lines. Doesn't mean there's no helium there. Might just mean that the temperature of the star isn't sufficient to excite the helium. Doesn't mean it's not there, it's just in a nice unexcited state and helium gas is normally a nice clear gas that you can't see, unless you excite the atoms. A cool star can't do that. So the absence of the absorption line doesn't mean the element is not present. Presence of the absorption line, yeah, that means it's there. If we see helium lines, we know helium is present. If we see carbon lines, we know carbon is present. If we see oxygen, oxygen is present. So if you see the absorption line in the star's spectrum, we know that element is there. There are calculations that can be done based on the temperature, based on the strengths of the lines to figure out how much. But just because you don't see something 
doesn't mean it isn't there. So if we look at a star like Betelgeuse, which is about half the temperature of our sun, you might not see helium lines. But helium is still there. These brown dwarf stars that are even cooler, they're still 10% helium by number of atoms. But you're not going to see any helium lines from them. So you really need the correct temperature to be able to see them as well in order for it to excite that specific type of atom. So kind of how we can learn a little bit about the abundance is what are stars composed of. And again, it all goes back to what we looked at in Chapter 5 with the uh, spectra. We have to be able to get that spectrum. Now, other thing we can learn about are the velocities of the stars. We talked about this, too, with the Doppler effect. I'll come back to that on the next slide a little bit. But we can measure velocities of the stars. Right? We talk, well, we talked about the Doppler effect. If we're moving away from, the, uh, from a star or a star is moving away from us, we're going to get a redshift. Line shifted towards longer wavelengths. If we're moving closer, we get a blue shift shifted towards shorter wavelengths. We've covered that with the Doppler effect uh, previously. However, stars also move across the sky slowly. But here's the Big Dipper today. And these stars, these five stars, are all moving pretty much in the same direction. But this star here is moving in one direction. This star is moving in a slightly different direction. Meaning that long ago, the Big Dipper looked like that. Far in the future, the Big Dipper will look like this. Still close, but you're getting a much, more, much bigger kink in the handle there. Now, we're talking tens of thousands of years, so don't go looking for it next week, next month, next year. You know, even 50 years from now, you're not going to see that. But 50,000 years ago, that's what the Big Dipper looked like. Over that time, this star has been moving this way, this one's been moving, and we have the pattern that we see today. But that's continually changing. This is what we call the proper motion of a star. This is the part we can't measure with the Doppler effect because this is across the line of sight. So just as radar won't work if something's coming, coming straight by you, can't get a radar measurement, same thing here. We can't measure this portion of the motion. So we have to put these two together to be able to figure out the motions of a star. We have to know how it's moving towards us and away from us. That's one part of its motion. But we also have to figure out how it's moving across the sky. This uses the Doppler effect. It's relatively easy to do. As long as you can measure the star, get a spectrum, figure out its shift, you can get that portion of it very easily. Proper motion is a lot harder. It takes time. We have to measure how the stars are slowly moving across the sky. So to, in order to see motions of this, which is still... It's still vaguely recognizable as the Dipper, somewhat, that you can see. You're taking 50,000 years. So in order to actually measure these are things you're not going to see with the eye. So the Greeks didn't detect this because you wouldn't see. Any of these stars are not close enough to us to see rapid motions. But over tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years, they will change. The patterns of the constellations will change significantly. So we can measure those. And with the telescope, we can measure finer detail of them. So we can actually measure how they're, how they're going over the course of uh, several years. But it is, a, it is a longer process to be able to determine. Then what you want to do is put it together. So you want to get the actual space velocity. So there's our sun. We're essentially down there with it somewhere. Here's this distant star. The red portion is the radial velocity that we can measure easily, Doppler effect. 
take a spectrum of it, boom, we, have, we can figure out it's moving away from us at some velocity. Then we, can we have to measure the proper motion. So we measure its slow motion. That depends on the distance. If something's close to you, it appears to move quickly. Right? You're driving down the highway, things right by there, zip right by you, things off in the distance move a lot, more, a lot slower. Well, we're talking about stars that are really far away, so the motions are tiny. But the closer the star is to us, the faster that will be. So this case, we can measure that. Once we can figure out, if we know a distance and we can figure out the proper motion, we can figure out the transverse velocity, how much of it is going across us that we can't see. And if you add those velocities together, you add this velocity and this velocity, remember that velocities have a direction, this star is really moving at some velocity off in this direction relative to us. So we can combine those two, but we need all of these measurements. And we haven't talked about distances yet. We'll talk about getting distances, which is really one of the tough things to be able to get uh, in astronomy. But that gives us the true motion of the star through space. So the radial velocity gives us one pick, one part of it. The proper motion gives us another. We need both of those to figure out how it's moving. So that's getting the velocities. We can also use the Doppler effect to figure out how stars are rotating. So we can use the Doppler effect. If you imagine, if you have a, not, if you have a star that's not rotating, you have light coming from it, you're going to get one specific line. You'll see just the spectral line from it. However, if a star is rotating, this part of the star is coming towards you. This part of the star is going away. Blue shift, red shift. It's not going to be as extreme as some of the stars moving because the stars aren't rotating that quickly. But what it will do is it will take that spectral line and spread it out. So instead of getting something nice and sharp like this, if it's not rotating, you get this that's spread out a lot more. Well, the amount of that shift, how that's changed, gives you a way to measure the rotation. So we can use that to measure the rotation of a star from its Doppler effect. Now, you'd have to subtract out whether the star is moving or towards you or away from you. You can get an overall Doppler shift, you know, where the center of that line is, but we're only looking at the width of it. That's all that matters for determining the rotation rate of a star. So it's another one of those pieces that we can determine just based on observations, just observing the light. So not only do we have the brightness and the temperatures that we talked about in the last section, but we have things like the spectral classes, the uh, luminosity classes, and all the things that we talked about here in terms of velocities, rotations, and even uh, later, we'll look at the masses of the stars. How can we determine how massive a star is? So as we call line broadening, it just broadens out the line. So you get a real sharp, narrow line. It gets broadened out because the star is rotating. Part of it's coming towards you, part of it's going away. And you can use that to then figure out the rotation, how fast that star is rotating. All right, finishing up this section. Um, the stars are classified based on temperatures. That's the OBAFGKM uh, spectral classification. Again, we added some to the beginning, the Wolf-Rayet stars, the, the uh, carbon stars, and the uh, brown dwarf stars down to the other side. And those are the ones we've added for some more unusual stars that were not seen as often early on. Uh, the spectrum of the star, we can learn things about the size of the star, the velocity, well, sizes are coming in the next one, but velocities, compositions, rotations. So we can learn a lot of properties 
just based on the spectrum of the star. All right, questions? All right, well, now we're going to look at masses and sizes, and then we'll see what we get to start on distances. So other things that we want to look at, you know, how massive are stars? And how big are stars? We already looked a little bit about star sizes, but now we want to look a little bit about how we want to look at stars. So let's take a look at the stars near us. It's probably a good way to get a typical set of stars. You know, the ones near us aren't going to be any specifically special type of star, necessarily. They're hopefully a good region of, a good sample of the types of stars that we see. When we look at the stars within 20 light years of the sun, well, there's no O or B stars at all. Right? They're not even on the scale. We've got two A's, an F, seven G's, 17 K's, 94 M's, a few white dwarf stars that we'll come back and talk about later, and there's the brown dwarf stars at 33. These are not the stars that we see in the nighttime sky. A couple of them are. Um, Sirius is one of the A-type stars that happens to be really close to us. Uh, there's several others, some of the brighter ones you see, but when it gets down to these M stars, you don't see them. They're close. They're really close to us, but they're so faint, they're invisible. So you, can't, you can see them with a telescope, but obviously without a telescope, you can't even see most of these. Same thing with the brown dwarfs. So if these are typical of stars in the sky, then the sun's you know, really on the brighter side of those. There's only a couple stars that are brighter than the sun within a few light years, within 20-some light years of us. Now, these are very different than the stars you see in the night sky. few exceptions, most of the stars, when you go out and look at the stars at night, you're seeing stars that are hundreds and thousands of light years away. That's how bright they have to be. We've got to see them over many times this distance. These stars aren't even visible, but these other stars are visible over tremendous distances. So the average star, again, it looks like M stars are a lot more common, at least based on our little chunk of the galaxy. The other question is this, is, you know, how common are the brown dwarf stars? I think this probably vastly underestimates how many there are. We didn't know about them not that long ago. And we've been able to detect a lot more. So there's probably still more brown dwarf stars out there that are within 21 light years that we don't even know about yet in terms of being able to detect them. So this is probably an underestimate, and probably, I'm going to guess that if there's 94 M stars, there's probably going to be a lot more. Look at how the numbers are increasing as you get down there, ignoring the white dwarf there, but there's probably you know, well over 100 of those around. We just don't, can't find them yet because they're so small, so faint. Remember, these are things that are only you know, 10 times Jupiter size. They're not producing any much energy of their own. They're not going to look very bright. Now, this is an example of what we call a selection effect. And it's because bright stars, we can see them thousands. There are some stars, some of the brightest stars out there are 1,000, 1,500 light years away. They're so bright, so large, so bright that we can see them over tremendous distances. Faint stars, even if they're sitting next to us, we don't see them. An M star just a couple of light years away would be incredibly faint, hard to find. So we're seeing, we don't see other stars because of this selection effect. We can only see the ones that are bright enough to be seen from the Earth. 
So ignoring telescopes and everything else right now, why did we not see a lot of them? The faint stars we can't really see. So what we're seeing in the star, seeing in the sky, are the more unusual stars. And that's what we mean by a selection effect. We, they stand out because they're so much brighter. The O and the B stars, many times the temperature of the sun, much brighter. That makes, means that we can see them over larger distances. So we can see these even if they're hundreds or even a thousand light years away. We can't see those other types of stars. These wouldn't be visible. Our sun wouldn't be visible at 100 light years to us without a telescope. Uh, the giants and the supergiant stars. I just went through that little video clip, right? We saw all the different gigantic stars. Those things are rare, though. Those big giant stars are not very common. And in fact, the nearest red giant star is about 100 light years away. Nothing even close to our neighborhood within 20 light years. The nearest O star of the hotter class of stars is 500 light years away. So nothing nearby at all. But we can see them very clearly even though they're at those large distances. You put the sun at either of those distances, we're not going to see it without a telescope. But we can see these other stars. So that's an example. What we mean by a selection effect is that some things stand out because they're so much brighter or they're so much larger, they're easier to detect. All right, so the next the other thing I wanted to look at was in terms of the masses. How do we figure out how massive a star is? Well, mass is important, but it's hard to figure out. In order to find the mass of a star, you have to have something orbiting it. If you've got a star there all by itself with nothing orbiting, you're, you're stuck. The only thing you could do is compare it to other stars and say, hey, this is a star like our sun. It's sitting there all by itself. Therefore, it's probably about the mass of our sun. Makes sense, but it's not an actual measurement. In order to determine this, you have to have something orbiting it, which could be a binary star, could be two stars orbiting each other, or a planet orbiting the star. You need something orbiting it. And then you're going back, Kepler's third law. Kepler's third law, as modified by Newton, related the mass to the orbital distance and the orbital period. So if you can determine those two, you can determine two of those, you can determine the third. If you measure the orbital distance, you measure the period, you can figure out the mass of the star. So one of the ways that we do that is through binary stars. We can look at the orbits of how these stars orbit each other. There's three different types of binary. This is one example of them. This is the rarest type. This is what we call a visual binary. It's one where you can actually see the two stars. That usually doesn't happen. Usually the stars are so far away, orbiting close enough together, that it looks like one star to us. There are a few cases where they're far enough apart or close enough to us that we can see them as two distinct stars. So that's what we mean by a visual binary. We can actually see both of the stars when we look at them. In more cases, we get a spectroscopic binary. When we look at this through a telescope, we see one star. So we're way far away from here. We just see the combined light of the star. However, the stars are orbiting. That means at some point here, this red star is moving away from us, and the yellow star would be moving towards us. Doppler shift, right? Red star is moving away. It gets the red shift. Other star gets a blue shift. It's coming towards you. So all of a sudden, you're going to get these stars shifted. And you're going to see one set of spectral lines here in the middle, when things are moving across your line of sight, 
And then you're going to have shifting one way, nothing again, and then shifted the other way. This is the most common type of star that we, common type of binary star that we see. And it's also a relatively easy one to measure because we can now measure the velocities. We've got the velocities of the orbit. And we can use that to determine the period. Uh, there's some other ways to be able to measure exactly how uh, wide the orbit is. So you can get some of the orbital parameters. You can then use that to determine the masses. Now, Kepler's law gives you the total mass. So it doesn't tell you the mass of this star and the mass of this star. It tells you their total mass. If you talk about a planet and a star, it really doesn't matter. Right? Because a planet is a tiny fraction of the mass of a star, so when you're determining the mass, you're determining the mass of the star. However, one of these stars could be the mass of the sun, one could be twice the mass of the sun or half the mass of the sun. You only have that combined mass. You don't have the individual masses. The third type is an eclipsing binary star. In this case... You still can't separate the stars. You can't see two individual ones. But you're kind of tilted on the orbit in that you're looking at it exactly edge on. One star passes right in front of the other. And when it does that, when you have this little star here, star one passes behind, or star, it's position one, it's position one. When it passes behind this big red star, the light dims a lot. Remember, red star is cooler, not putting off as much energy. Blue star is a lot hotter. Most of the light from the star comes from this one. So when you block its light off, that star gets a lot fainter. It comes back out. The light goes up here. You're blocking out some of this star's light. It dims a little bit. You can see that pattern when one star passes in front of the other. So that allows us, again, to determine the orbits because we can determine the orbital period. And we can get an idea of how, what the sizes of the orbits are as well by how far it is between, the two, between each uh, occurrence. So we can get some ideas of how big this orbit is. So if we can measure that, we can measure how long it takes to orbit once. Then we can use Kepler's third law to be able to get the masses, at least the combined mass of them. So in binary stars, any of the type of binary stars, we can do this if we can measure the orbit. The visual binaries are one of the hardest, mainly because if they're this far apart that we can see them, they're moving slow. They can take 50, 100 years to make a decent chunk of the orbit. So it can take a long time to be able to take all these images to get a good orbit for them. Spectroscopic binaries, we can't see them, but they're very close together. You might have things that orbit with only days, weeks, months, even years, not talking decades or centuries. So how do we determine the mass? Well, Kepler's third law. We talked about that way, way back. That was the semi-major axis cubed is equal to the period of revolution squared. I promised you you'd see it again. Then I didn't lie to you. There it is. So you take the semi-major axis, you cube it, and you square the period of revolution. Those two are equal in the solar system. They're equal in the solar system because in the solar system, the mass that's being orbited is the mass of the sun. We were talking about planets here. Newton actually redoes this, and your textbook uses D for the semi-major axis and P for the period of revolution. Then you get the same equation, D, which is the semi-major axis cubed, period of revolution squared, but there's another factor in here, which is the mass of the two objects. So if you, what it means is if you can measure D, 
figure out what it is in astronomical units, cubit. Divide that by the period in years, squared. That gives you the total mass, the mass of the two objects added together. Now, if you're talking about a planet orbiting a star, guess what? You've got the mass of the star because mass of the, planet, mass of the star is like this. Mass of the planet is down through the basement in terms of how, how, what percentage they are. So you can essentially ignore one. Otherwise, it will at least give you the mass of the system and it, you can at least get some kind of estimates on what the stars are. So we do this in solar masses. If you actually want to calculate this in regular units, things like grams or kilograms, you can do that. There's actually an extra constant that is involved here. That's why we measure things the, in astronomical units. We measure this in years. That makes them comparable to our solar system and then measures the mass of the star in solar masses. So we can then say this star is 10 times the mass of our sun or this star is one-tenth the mass of our sun. Now, we, what range do we find when we do these calculations? We find that there are some limits. We already talked about a lower limit to the mass of a star. It's about one-twelfth of a solar mass, 0 0.075. That's how low you can get to be a star. Otherwise, we talked about this already. Can't fuse hydrogen into helium, you become a brown dwarf star. Largest stars that we find are limited to about 120 times the mass of our sun. You can't get much larger than that because the brightness just doesn't increase a little bit. The brightness and intensity of a star's radiation increases like exponentially. It whips up there as you get to a higher and higher mass star. So when you get too hot, when you start to get too hot, too, sorry, too much mass, the star forms. It's producing all this energy, which pushes material away, which keeps it from adding more material. You've got too much material. You're pushing out the outer portions that would otherwise keep condensing in and form that star larger and larger. So theoretically, the limit right now is about 120 times the mass of the sun. Once you get beyond that, the radiation pressure is stronger than gravity and pushes the outer portions away, doesn't allow any more material to, uh, to, land, on this, to land on the star, to land on the star, to add to its mass. Now, technically, you can actually get up to about 300 solar masses. That's if you have a star that has absolutely no metals. Remember, metals are anything other than hydrogen or helium. So the very earliest stars that formed in the universe might have gotten up to about 300 solar masses. Now our whole universe has become contaminated by things like carbon and silicon and iron and you know, all the stuff that makes us up. And that affects how the, stars, how the stars work a little bit and in terms of the upper limit to the mass. We're now down to about 120 is the most massive star that you can get. So, and we've rarely found stars with masses more than about 100. Anytime we look or we think we might find other stars that are much larger, it usually turns out to be two or three stars orbiting really close together. So that's been a pretty solid limit. We've not been able to find anything much over about 100 times the mass of our sun. So, but we determine all that by the methods I've shown you, using binary stars, using something orbiting a star to be able to determine those masses. All right, diameters of stars. How do we figure out the diameter of a star? Well, you can't just look at it. Right? Once you figure out how big a planet is, you can take a, take a picture. You can see, we saw Jupiter in our picture today. It had some diameter to it. I can do that with a star. You can put it on the biggest telescope, and you're going to see a dot. It is still a dot of light, except for the 
very closest, very largest stars, things like Betelgeuse, which is relatively close, only a few hundred light years away, and really large, well, you can actually make out a tiny, tiny disk for it, a really irregular little blob, but it's not easy to see. So for the most part, you can't just measure the size of it. So you, there's a few different methods that are talked about that you can use in the textbook. You can use the moon passing in front of a star. Well, the moon has a pretty nice smooth edge. When it passes in front of the star, the star doesn't just completely wink out like that. It takes some tiny fraction of a second. And you can use that to measure how long did it take to pass that star. So you can use that to measure how big the star is by how much time it took, you know how fast the moon's going. You can measure how long it took to cover up that star completely. You'd measure essentially, this isn't the curve for the moon, but you get something very similar. The moon, would, you'd see the brightness of the star. It wouldn't just drop straight down to nothing. It would take some amount of time. That time would tell you how big the star is. Now the moon passes in front of a lot of stars. It's pretty good size, so we get, we get that relatively often. You can use that to help determine diameters of stars. A big way is through eclipsing binaries, though that we looked at. I'll show you the picture I showed previously. And it's the same kind of thing. How long does it take it to change? From very bright down to its faintest. That tells you how long this star took from the time it first hit one edge of the star till it was fully within the, behind the star. How long that took? The steeper this goes down, the smaller the star. The more spread out this goes down, the bigger the star. So you can use how the light changes to be able to measure the size of the star. You could do the same thing here. If you note, this one's a lot steeper. This one's a lot more shallow. This is looking at star one, a star, the blue star going behind the red star. This is looking at the blue star going in front of the red star. So you're learning, again, something about how the sizes drop off. So we can learn something about the sizes of the two stars that way. We can also use the radiation law. Then looking, I didn't give it to you in this form. This is the Stefan Boltzmann law that I talked about, which really just said the luminosity would depend on the temperature. Uh, they go through it in a little bit more detail here. The luminosity really depends on the area of the star and the temperature. So luminosity, ignore the four pi and the little sigma, that's just constants. But it depends on the size of the star and the temperature. So if we know the luminosity of the star, we may have measured that from other methods, we may have gotten the temperature from another method, we can then figure out the radius. So there's a way to calculate. If you can get the lum how luminous the star is, you can figure out the temperature of the star, those are doable, then you can actually determine the radius of a star. From, and this is the way we get a lot of radii of stars. So this one you have to wait, and this only works for certain stars that are near the path of the moon. So Polaris, you could never use this for. The moon never goes near Polaris, so it's never going to pass in front of it. Eclipsing binary, it's got to be a specific type of star. This is the general one that we can use to really get how big the stars are. Now, the masses of stars weren't a very big range. They went from what, about a tenth to about 100 times the mass of the sun. Radii, again, we've talked, we talked I showed you the video of this. Smallest stars are Jupiter-sized. I didn't even show those because we jumped right to the sun, but there are actually, actually are smaller stars. If we look at some of the red dwarf stars, they're not much bigger than Jupiter. A lot denser, more mass, but not much bigger in terms of size. These are the most common ones that we see. The biggest stars, many times larger. 
So we can go a tiny fraction of the sun's size. We can go up to giant stars, which are 10 to, a, uh, 10 to 100 times larger than the sun. Supergiants are more than 100. And there's V.Y. Canis Majoris, 1,400 times larger than the sun. So again, it would extend out, as I said, it would extend out beyond Jupiter if it was placed in our solar system. So there's a very big range in terms of the sizes of the stars. These ones are relatively rare. Otherwise, the sky would be nice and bright. We'd see all sorts of these. If these things were as common as, the, as these stars, the sky would be very, very bright because you'd be seeing these nice bright stars all over the place. It's only that they're relatively rare that we don't see all that many of them, but we can see them over very, very large distances. All right. All right, so finishing up this section, we have a wide variety of masses, diameters of stars. I talked about some of the methods to determine the size and the mass. And large stars, there's a difference between the stars that we see in the sky are the big ones, large size, large mass. Small stars in both size and mass are the more common ones. So you see a lot more of these. But these are the ones, they see a lot more of these ones, sorry, but these are the ones that are actually most common when you actually measure just some sample of the universe, measure some sample of the galaxy and count how many of each type of stars there are there. The big ones are relatively rare. All right, questions? Otherwise, the next thing I wanted to look at was some of the properties of the stars and graphing them. So give a scientist some data, they're going to sit there and plot things against each other to look for patterns. Normally when you plot two things together, you know, you get no pattern. You just get a scatter of points all over the plot. When there's some kind of relationship, then that's when something interesting, you find that there's a relationship between two different properties of a star, in this case, or two other properties. And back in the early 1900s, um, we had two astronomers, Hertzsprung and Russell, that put together, uh, independent, were working on graphs of the properties of the sun. So what they graphed was the luminosity, how bright the star was. Remember, luminosity is the true brightness. This is the one that is related to the star, not how bright it looks in the sky, how bright it really is. And this is in terms of solar luminosity. So this is a star that is the sun, brightness of the sun. Guess what? There's our sun right there. 100 times brighter, 10,000 times brighter, or 100 times fainter, or 10,000 times fainter in terms of the amount of energy it's actually putting off. And then they graphed it against the spectral class. Spectral class OBAFGKM. Remember, that's just the temperature. Hot stars, cold stars. And what they found was that stars didn't appear all over the place. You didn't just get a random scattering of plots all over the place, but that there was a big diagonal line kind of going through here, and then you had a few stars down in one corner, and you had a few stars up in a couple of other sections. But big parts of it were blank. You didn't form a star of, you know, at this temperature, you didn't form a star that was down here, or at this, this luminosity, you didn't form a star that was at this temperature. So there was definitely a relationship between the two. And this is what we now call the HR diagram after these two. And what we find when we look at it, in terms of the stars, the vast majority, 90% of the stars, fall on what we call the main sequence. That's this diagonal line going from the upper left down to the lower right. So pick a star out of the universe at random. That's what you're going to 
it's going to most likely, got a 90% chance it's going to fall on the main sequence. Other than that, it's most likely to be a white dwarf star. And those giants and supergiants are really rare. They might be gigantic and they're cool, interesting stars to study, but they're really rare. They do not occur uh, very often. They're less than 1% of the stars in the universe. But you can see them over large, large distances. So when we want to put together one of these diagrams, we start off with drawing the axes. So I've put the color index here. You can, put, you can plot a number of different things on these axes. So uh, we can do luminosities, we can do magnitudes. They're both different ways. All right, let's do this axis first. You can do luminosities, which is what I showed you in the previous. But you could also plot magnitudes. The absolute magnitudes, how bright the star actually is, you could put bright stars up here, faint stars down here. So there's different things that you could plot. You can't plot a parent magnitude. Parent magnitude depends on distance. So you could have a star that's really bright but looks faint because it's far away, or you could have a star that really looks bright and is, or looks bright because it's so close to us. So it has to be the absolute magnitude, the actual measure that involves the distance. You can plot either one of those. So luminosity, absolute magnitude are two that work. On the x-axis, you can plot some measure of the temperature. I talked about the color index. That's one way to do it. You can use the temperature itself. You could use the spectral class. So all of those can go here. The one thing that's backwards, yeah, astronomers have to do everything backwards just to keep you on your toes. Uh, temperature increases to the left. So hot stars are over here, cool stars are down here. That's not normally how we plot things, right? We normally start with small numbers to big numbers. When you plot the temperature, it actually goes backwards. So the hottest stars are going to be right here. Coolest stars are going to be right here. And again, that comes, goes back to how these were originally done. They were done with spectral class, not temperature. So you've plotted OBAFGKM. That's how the stars were classified. And now if you're doing temperature, you keep them the same way. If you look at color index, it actually does increase towards the right-hand side. And then you can put different parts, label some of the different parts on it. So there is the main sequence going down there. Uh, there's the sun someplace in the middle. There are, what did I have a main sequence? And you have the giant stars kind of up in this range, the supergiant stars up here. The very largest stars way up in the upper right-hand corner. So that's where VY Canis Majoris would be. Um, down below, you've got the white dwarf stars. And of course, there's our sun right about in the middle of the main sequence. Again, just because it's in the middle doesn't mean it's a middle-type star because these things are very rare. These things are really common. So there's a lot more stars on this part of the main sequence than there are up here. So. I don't know if I'm doing it, not this exam, not next time, but this is often something I ask you to redraw on an exam. Just so you know, make sure you've got it, look at that, be able to label where the different parts are, where the main sequence. Again, that would be exam three. It won't be on next times because that doesn't include this chapter, but it's often something that I do ask you to, to draw on those. So I'll have you go, probably have you do something like that, or maybe now that I've told you, I won't. So it's, it's a good thing to sketch on your key points when I give you the next set, just to have it there to be able to do it. That way you've drawn it on there once, so you know you've hopefully, hopefully gotten it in your mind a little bit. But yeah, you want to look at those. You want to label the axes. You do put one or two of the things there, label where the main sequence is. But it all comes together that there's, again, these big chunks, areas, 
where you don't find stars. So star, there's a relationship between the luminosity and the temperature of the star. And what we could learn about, you know, what can we learn about these if we look at another HR diagram? When we look at the main sequence, when we look at the stars that are there, these are the most massive stars up here. And the low mass stars are down here. So just on the main sequence, this doesn't occur elsewhere. This doesn't count for giants or supergiants or white dwarfs. But for along the main sequence, there's a mass relationship. That mass star, high mass stars are up in the upper left, low mass stars down in the lower right. And that's been confirmed. Our star formation models really show this. However, stars, don't, stars change. So what we'll look at over the coming weeks is stars change over their lives, over long periods of time, especially at the end of their lives, they change. Their temperature will change, their luminosity will change. Our sun will eventually end up in the giant phase and in the supergiant phase over here, like Betelgeuse. Not, not in the near future, you've got billions of years when it exhausts its fuel. But it will eventually do this, it will move into those phases. What it means it's moving, it means its temperature has changed, it's gotten a little bit cooler, because it was here, now it's moved up to, the, it's moved to this direction a little bit, and it's gotten a lot brighter. So our sun will eventually be one of those stars that can be seen over large distances. You know, five, five and a half billion years from now at the end of its life, it will have gone through that and it will actually be one of the brighter stars. These are also much shorter phases. These don't last very long. Sun spends 10 billion years here, it won't even spend, it'll spend a fraction of that going through its later phases of its life. But their positions can change over time, and we'll look at that. So I've given you the HR diagram here, but we'll be looking at it over the coming weeks. We'll keep looking at it, and we'll see how, char how stars change and how they evolve over time by how their luminosity changes and how their temperatures change. So looking at some of the extremes here, you know, where are the extremes on this diagram? Well, diameter-wise, these are the biggest stars up in the upper right here. Smallest stars are down in the lower left. So those are big, those are small. So these white dwarf stars that we'll look at are really tiny stars. They're about the size of the Earth. They're not actually technically stars either, but they're a different type of, they're, they're the compact core of a dead star. Uh, Star diameter, star masses, again, only for the main sequence. Goes from here, large masses, down to small masses. That doesn't apply for white dwarfs. That doesn't apply for the giants or supergiants. Only for the main sequence. And densities kind of go with diameters. These are the very low-density stars. These are the very high-density stars. And in fact, when you get down to those white dwarfs, and we'll talk about them later this month, those white dwarfs, that's, that's essentially the, what the core of the sun will be like billions of years from now. All the outer layers will expand out into space. What will be left is the core. That'll be the white dwarf. But it's so compacted down that a teaspoon, a little teaspoon full of material, would be about 50 tons. If you think about how much space that is, that all that is is crushing out all the space within the, within the atoms. Uh, uh, sorry, it's the space between the atoms. So if you could take all the space and compress all the space, push those atoms as close together as you possibly can, you can take the sun down to about the size of the earth. Imagine what you could do with the earth. If you could just, that, that gives you an idea of how much empty space there is between the atoms and you and me and the buildings and everything. That big boulder, right? 
down to you know, a pinpoint. If you could just get rid of the space, be- that's just the space between the atoms. The atoms are still there. You still have an atom, you still have electrons, but you've gotten those electrons as close as they can possibly get. We'll come back to those white dwarf stars again later on when we talk about the end states of stars. So white dwarfs are different than red dwarfs. Red dwarf stars are just regular, ordinary stars. These are kind of that collapsed core. So finishing up this section, um, we, we plot the luminosity against the temperature. We get some patterns. We get to see some patterns. And the HR diagram is what shows this. And we're going to come back to that to look at what we call stellar evolution. How do stars evolve and change over time? So we'll be looking at that once we get through. We'll even look at it with star formation a little bit uh, coming up in the coming weeks. Most of the life of a star is spent on the main sequence, but the position changes. So a star that is a main sequence star now in a billion years or 10 billion years could be a giant star and then might be a supergiant star and then could be a white dwarf star. So they can go through, a star like our sun will go through all of those stages at the end of, towards the end of its life. All right, questions? Otherwise, I'm going to stop there because the last section is distances. I don't want to go ahead and get started on that.